a fight over control of a police officer's gun and shots fired. This is a very special episode of the Law Enforcement Today podcast. In this episode, the guest is me. In particular, my appearance as a guest on the Law Matters radio show broadcast on KVOI AM radio in Tucson, Arizona. Law Matters host Sherry Harrison interviews me. We talk about the violent incident that ended my police career, gun control, and much more. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. If you enjoy the Law Enforcement Today podcast, do me a big favor. Tell a friend. And if you're able, if you got a few moments, leave an honest review and rating. But most importantly, tell a friend or two or three. I want to uh, make an announcement. We're, again, mourning the loss of a good guy. One of our amazing Star agents, Border Patrol Supervisor Agent Daniel Cox, a 24-year devoted servant to his country, was killed this week. This is a senseless tragedy, and it just breaks my heart. But on behalf of Law Matters, and we offer our prayers, our, our sympathy, to his family and his work family, and I'll never get used to making these announcements. And our guest today is Jay Wiley from Law Enforcement Today out of Florida. And Jay, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here with you, Sherry. Thanks for having me on your show. It's very much appreciated. And you're right; it's it's horrible when this news happens, and it never gets easier. And it brings up memories of so many people that have died in the line of duty and uh, their service or sacrifice is always appreciated by me oh absolutely i want to i want to talk to you about everything but before we get started tell our listeners about you what's your history your work history and and i know you do a show in florida tell us why you do the show well first i'm a retired baltimore uh, city police sergeant i got hurt and retired young in what the, the news media loves to call the unarmed man incident uh, who tried to shoot me with my service weapon while still in my hand. Uh, fortunately, he survived. I survived. I thought I sprained my wrist, and after multiple surgeries, a couple steel plates, and a total fusion of my right hand and wrist, I was retired at the age of 33. Oh, wow. About eight years later, I began pursuing a career in broadcasting. In the early days, we now considered podcasting and fell in love with it. Uh, went to a station where I got to buy my time and did a show. Uh, then went to broadcasting school at nights, and I've been full-time radio FM music DJ for about 18 years. And in 2017, I launched a podcast called Law Enforcement Today. Uh, we got approached by radio stations, asked, and we converted to a radio show. We did. It's now syndicated, broadcast once a week. Uh, we have 50 affiliate, official affiliate radio stations, broadcasting about 23 million combined population. And then it goes online as a podcast each episode. It's a top 1% podcast worldwide. Um, I love what I do, and I love providing a platform for not just law enforcement officers to tell their stories, but uh, you give me a glimpse behind the badge, but also victims of crime, uh, military, uh, other first responders, other law enforcement officers, their family members, their survivors, talking about trauma they went through, how it impacted their lives, and uh, what they did to build the new lives afterwards, and most of them, uh, their trauma has been impacted and caused by violent crime. Yes. Um, and there's some very inspiring stories. Yes, that's that's so true. And I don't think people realize they'll read a headline and oh, so and so was killed. The ripple effect is tremendous. And I don't think anybody out here, where I, you know, my friends, my circle of influence i don't think anybody's not experienced something like this and it's just what do you do how do you handle that every day i know you you cover the whole nation when there's a tragedy how do you handle that every day 
Well, first of all, I, I tell people that, you know, I'm just a street cop. I, I don't, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a, a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I, I just try to stay in my lane and tell people when, and the very little of the show is about me and what I've been through. But when I do, when it adds to the conversation, I tell people what I went through, how it impacted me and the choices I had to make to find a way to build a better life in spite of what happened. You know, these things happen to everybody. Like you said, they happen to everyone, and the ripple effect on the community is tremendous. But we're given a choice. We can't undo the past. What we can do is say, okay, how can I change the future for me, for my family, my loved ones, and then hopefully for my community and make a positive impact? That's what I try to focus on. Yeah, and I don't think people realize when you're in a situation like that, you have a nanosecond to make a decision. And there are so many Monday night quarterbacks, you know, saying, oh, I would do this or I would do that. You don't know what you're going to do until you're in the situation. And I'm very, I'm very rude about it. I tell people, you don't know you weren't there. Exactly. <laughs> you know, say that easily from where you're at, the safety of your keyboard, where there's no threat, or the biggest threat is a rusty paperclip. Uh, it's easier said than done. Oh, absolutely. So how do you feel about the attitude towards law enforcement? And this is like even two years ago. Everything has changed. Well, first, you know, I would love to tell you that I think it's new. It's dramatic. It's getting a lot of coverage. We have, you know, from my early days in policing, we didn't have 24-hour, seven-day-a-week cable television right. with news channels. And we didn't have social media was being flooding these stories. But there was very much a negative uh, anti-police uh, climate going on that le- left over from the 70s, from the Vietnam War era. There, people need to look at their history and see how many people, how many police officers have been killed and mutilated and by, by murderers, by criminals, by terrorists in the 60s and 70s. The number is staggering. Uh, so what's, it's not new. What is new is that we're constantly being bombarded with it. We don't hear all the great things that the cops do. We don't hear all the great things they do daily. Uh, we don't hear about all the positive interactions they have in community under horrible situations. All we hear is negative, negative, negative. And, and here's an example I come up with. You could have a professional athlete decides to take a knee during the national anthem. They get front page publicity and sponsorship. But you have someone who feeds thousands of people every day and no one knows about them. Right. No one. Right. It's so true. Everybody wants to focus on um, the wrong things, is my opinion. Uh, yeah, that's why we do the show, because we want people to know we've got some amazing law enforcement personnel out there, and we need to support them. Their job is dangerous. In military, I can tell you, I, I'm honorary commander at Davis Monthan, and one of my people stopped at the grocery store to pick up some diapers on his way home and some lady came up and spit on him because of his uniform and he has to not engage because he's in his uniform you cannot engage you know you don't want to cause a scene this is unacceptable and this happened just a few months back this is unacceptable people need to be more respectful of of law enforcement of the uniform i just don't know what's in people's heads anymore it's become fashionable to do that. People think they're making a statement and they're raising awareness. You know, I, I'm I'm a product of the Vietnam War era. I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia, and a lot of the kids I went to school with, their fathers were POWs or missing in action, and they spent seven, eight years in, in these facilities, and then they came home. And I remember how they were treated when they came home. And the, the same treatment is happening with our law enforcement officers today, and to some respect, other first responders, and military as well. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I just don't get it. I don't understand. Were they raised by wolves? It just doesn't make sense to me. What What do you think is going to happen with this case up in Minnesota? Is he going to get a retrial? You know, that's a, a decision that the, the legal experts have to make. You know, I was always taught early on that as a police officer, when you wind up having to arrest someone, you build the best case you have with what's available at the time with the evidence. And 
there's no accounting for what juries do. There's really no, there's so many intricacies that are created by the legal system that you don't have a lot of impact on it. All you can do is the best job you can. Will he get a retrial? I don't know. And, you know, I've learned this a long time ago. Never bet on what a judge or jury is going to do, ever, ever, ever. It could be a lock-solid case, and next thing you know, they're not guilty. Yeah, that's so true. I've I've seen a lot of cases like that. I just feel that, you know, I didn't have the time to sit and watch the whole trial, but I was home when they did part of the closing arguments, and that was the first time I saw the video of what led up to the the person being on the on the ground and i thought why why didn't we see that part all these weeks before instead of just watching you know somebody kneeling on somebody i it put a whole different perspective on the situation for me but i'm just one person and i'm not on the jury we had a, a philosophy in baltimore and it still holds true is and this referred to the the newspaper uh, the Baltimore Sun in particular, if it bleeds, it leads. And that, that the more gore, the more shock that they can deliver, the more eyeballs they get on their product, the more advertisers see, the more the gen- revenue they can generate. It, it's a revenue thing. And, you know, you and I are both in radio, and we're about trying to get more listeners. We want to be honest and have authentic product and be authentic people and, and do we stand by and stand for but if he can't get an audience, it doesn't really matter. So when these other people, news media, they're going to put out what's going to attract a lot of attention and a shock factor is what gets everything out there. Without saying whether I believe or agree whether he should have been arrested or not, I am not shocked ever that any media outlet puts out a video that is edited, that is shortened and deliberately manufactured and presented in a way that creates the most shock factor, gets most eyeballs on their product, period. And starts a conversation and not necessarily the right one. And well, it doesn't really matter if it's the right one or, or, or even a fair one or just one. It's about making money. It's yeah. always with the news media, people, we've had court case after court case. They're not required to tell us facts or the truth. Their job is to generate revenue for their shareholders and their advertisers. That's their job. Even if they're spewing untruths, <laughs> unfortunately. And they do, do. Yeah, they do do that. So during your career, how did people treat you? I know it was decades earlier, but how did people treat you? Did you get the respect of like school kids? This is something I'm finding really remarkable. The short answer is no. It depends on the individual and the situation. I'll very quickly tell people, in my career, I was in four shootings in a little less than 11 years, like 10 years and change. And the first two, I never fired a shot back because immediately I knew the threat was over. The second two were dramatically different. Um, Everybody survived. And not one of those people, not one of them shot at me because I was a white officer. They all shot at me because they're trying to avoid apprehension. However, if I shoot back, it's automatically about race. Of course. And there there are conclusions made based on the way people look and not based on the facts. So it's an incredibly violent situation, a lot of violence. Most of it was you know, directed towards family members and victims of crimes that, in our community that we served, and it's horrifying to see. Yeah, it, and that's something we're experiencing here in Arizona. We have homicides are up just in Tucson and Pima County. Homicides are up like three times, four times more what they were over a year ago. And I'm just like, what's the matter with people? What's this world coming to? Everybody's out buying guns and shooting people up because they're angry. And then the news says, well, they had a mental problem. Well, no kidding. Who doesn't have a mental problem and who doesn't have an anger issue? I laugh when people tell me, you don't understand, I'm angry. Oh, yeah, like I haven't been angry in my life. I don't want to talk about for a day, I'm talking about for years. Oh, yeah, when I get angry, I don't go breaking into department stores, looting them until they're empty, and then torching them. That's not, you know, how you handle the situation. (laughs) And John is sitting in the control room going... You don't? Why not? (laughs) 
Yeah, no, it's it's just a whole different ball game. And honestly, I you know, there's a lot of politicians out there that I some of them I respect, some I don't. But I don't think when John Lewis was talking to people just before he passed that he meant to do things like what's going on now. It's just it's senseless. So what do you think about the gun situation? What do you think they're going to do with it? Well, it, again, it's the thing about politics is you have to create an, an environment where, I'll put it this way, the best movies are the ones about the boogeyman. So they create someone who is a threat that or a something that is a threat, and they are the solution for the threat. So guns, they keep telling you, are the problem. It's not guns that are a problem. They want more gun control. How about some criminal control? How about we take people that have 10, 15 prior arrests that have been convicted multiple times for violent crimes and put them in jail? And leave them there. Harm the regular population. (laughs) These guns that are being used in crimes, the vast majority are not being committed by law-abiding citizens or even legally purchased guns. They're by guns that are stolen in robberies, burglaries, or whatever else. It's done by criminals. Let's lock them up. Why do you think they're not doing that? I've I've said it before. You know, let's do something about this. These people shouldn't have these guns. Why are they selling guns to people who have uh, mental problems? I don't know that they are. Uh, You know, even in the state I'm in, in Florida, uh, uh, last time I bought a gun, and I'm I'm not a gun guy, to be honest with you. I never had a gun in my life until I became a cop. Uh, so I have a couple, but even being a retired police, there's a seven day wait, seven to 10 days to, to, to be able to purchase a, a handgun. And you got to go through the requirements. Of everybody else does. I don't know where they come up with this stuff from, but part of it is if someone has a mental problem, the HIPAA laws do not allow some of that information to be released. How are they going to get access to it? Number one. Number two, if the person filling out the paperwork to buy this rifle or this gun doesn't let out that they've been treated for schizophrenia voluntarily, how are they going to find out? Right. Oh, by the way, I'm a sociopath. You know, they're not right. going to say that. So, yeah, those people don't exactly tell people, <laughs> hey, yeah, by the way, I'm a sociopath. I hear voices like the son of Sam that tell me I want to kill people. They don't tell you that. <laughs> True that. But I, I still think that, you know, if, and they'll say, oh, it was spare of the moment. Somebody just, you know, got angry and it's spare of the moment they, they killed somebody. If you have to wait seven days, ten days to get a permit and this is what you're doing to, you know, shoot somebody with this gun that you're buying, that's premeditated murder. That's not, oh, right. spare of the moment. So. Right. And, and a big thing is that we're taught that when it comes to violent crime, you got to have the means, the motive, and the opportunity to commit that crime. So the opportunity is, okay, there's no cops around, so I'm going to go kill Joe Blow. The motive, I'm killing him because he was messing around with my wife or whatever it might be, or he owes me money. The means is the least important. I use a gun, a knife, a car, a bomb, whatever it might be. People focus on the means all the time instead of the opportunity and the motive. You can't put more Emphasis on one saying the gun is the issue. Look at the United Kingdom. Knife crimes are skyrocketing. Gun crime is very, very low. Here in the United States, does it really matter if a person was shot, stabbed, bludgeoned with a baseball bat, or whatever? If they're killed, they're killed. Yeah, dead is dead. You're not coming back. No. You know, and they're they're poisoning people. (laughs) I was watching a show the other day, and it's like, yeah, this is your poison of choice. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? (laughs) But, yeah, people will find a way. If they're set on doing something, they will find the way. And you're right. They'll go out and buy illegal guns. They're everywhere. And They are. Yeah, you don't need a permit for that. I don't know. I don't know how they could even begin to control anything like that. Well, a lot of these people, I'll go back to what I said earlier, a lot of these people that commit these violent crimes in there, you know, there's in the prison population, in my experience, there's a, a percentage of people that have one bad moment in their life. There was another large percentage of people that wasn't for drugs or alcohol. They never do the things they did and wound up in prison. They're so responsible for what they did. Then you have the career criminals. The career criminals that go out and purchase these guns illegally, 
It's not the first time they've done this. Many of them have been arrested multiple times and given. I'll give you a case in Texas. A guy is a convicted felon, and he's out on parole. He's on parole, and he's arrested for murder. And what's the judge do? Gives him bond and lets him walk. He's a parolee. Yeah. He's already proven he can't be trusted in society, and he did it again. And yet, we let him back on the streets. We can harm more people. That doesn't make sense logically. That happened in New York. The that man that was beating up on the little Asian lady. Yeah. He he was paroled and he was a murderer and they let him go. So we've got a caller on the line. Charles, what's on your mind? Well, I wanted to bring something up in terms of guns and, and I'm sorry, your guest's name again is please Mr. Wiley, is it? Jay Wiley. Jay, Jay Wiley, Mr. Wiley, thank you for your reasonable attitude and, and you're trying to broaden the scope and talking about dealing with violence, not just with the, with the method of violence. I think it's a message that doesn't get out there often enough. It gets overridden by emotion, especially in media. But, Sherry, just because a person has mental problems does not disqualify them from gun ownership, only if they've been institutionalized against their will. And those records are available. Even even HIPAA notwithstanding, those records, uh, record especially if it's done by a court, those records are public. And so it is possible if we fix the system and and uh, require reporting of that to get people who are disabled, who are mentally disabled from owning a gun, to make it so they can't buy one as from a dealer. But just because they have schizophrenia alone, unless they've been institutionalized for it, doesn't prohibit them from owning a gun. And here's why. What you're doing, basically, is you're saying, if you're saying, well, if you've got schizophrenia, you, you, you're, you can't defend yourself, what you're then doing is you're discriminating against the handicapped. Mr. Wiley, I'd love your comment on that. I agree with you 185%. And the, the other thing that a lot of people don't realize I tell people all the time, don't answer yes to people's preconceived stereotypes. Schizophrenia. Everybody's got schizophrenia isn't a threat. Everybody's got some sort of mental illness is not a threat and not always violent. And even people who are narcissists and sociopaths, they're not always violent. Some of them are elected politicians and are very good at what they do uh, <laughs> because of that, that skill set. And some of them are, you know, in the legal profession. So, if someone has and a great example is post-traumatic stress, everybody that has PTSD or injury, I prefer to, uh, prefer to call it, is not a threat of violence to people. But Hollywood puts out that image and everyone believes that's the case. And that's what the media runs with. So you could have all these people that have mental illnesses and have weapons and they're no threat to anybody. And they're your next door neighbor. And they've never been a threat to anybody. And they don't, they don't go out of their way to make life miserable for anyone. They just want to have a happy life. That's true. That's they so- have a right to defend themselves, especially if they're disabled. I teach the concealed weapons permit class, and I've been doing that for 27 years. And I have certified in my time three blind people. And when people who are anti-freedom about guns hear that, they go nuts. Why would you want a blind person to have a gun? <laughs> the same and reason I, I want them to have a car. No, maybe. But if you listen to, it doesn't mean they can't own the car. It means that they can't drive it. But True. the point is, a blind person is at a greater risk of attack than a person with sight. So what you're saying is because the person has a disability, they can't defend themselves? That's the, that, that is open and notorious discrimination. Now, you change the ammunition the person shoots so it won't go as far. Okay, you, you, you put ammo in their gun that has less likelihood of injuring innocent people. But if a person attacks a blind person, if they're going to be at hand distance, why wouldn't you use a gun? And some people just don't think that way. They think that somehow because a person's blind, that, that they have a handicap, that you should discriminate against them. And that's, that's horrible. That's We have laws against discrimination. That's true. And I think when people apply for certain types of weapons and certain types of ammo, they should be able to sign something that says, I give up my HIPAA rights. You can find out that I'm a normal person. I've never been 
you know, put in the funny farm or anything. <laughs> and I'm not distressed. I'm not, I'm not Jerry, unhappy. What? You cannot, there's a principle in law that you cannot force someone to give up a right to gain another one. True. And it, that you, you shouldn't, and number one, and also remember in Arizona, there is no licensing that's required. There's no, it's against the law in Arizona to force a person to register a gun except a machine gun or a silencer or a short barrel rifle or short barrel shotgun. But other than that, and that's a national registration, not a local one. It is against the law in Arizona to force a person to register a gun, and that's good. The government has no business knowing what uh, what what non-criminal citizens own. None. Okay. Okay, I'd love to hear your answer on the air. Thank you. He's preaching to the choir, if you ask me, because uh, <laughs> I agree with him 100%. You know, um, and again, every every state's different, but I have a Rottweiler. We've had Rottweiler dogs for 20 years, Twenty, my wife and I for 25 years. The state will issue licensing, and they want to know what breed you have, so they can be classified as either an aggressive dog or a non-aggressive dog based on their breed. I don't believe they have a right to know what kind of free family member I have. I don't believe the government has a right to know and demand how many Glocks I have or what 12-gauge shotgun I own. That's really none of their business because I don't walk around and I don't create problems for people. I've never been arrested, nor will I ever plan on getting arrested. But all these laws they pass, guess who they target? They target people. They want to create a whole new class of felons, for lack of better words, that have never committed a crime in their lives because all of a sudden some legislation's been passed that says you are now criminal. Meanwhile, they ignore the violent criminals that walk the streets and, is, and they go so far as to put them right back out there. Yeah, and they have. And they, do, they don't reform them until they're in prison, so they're out there doing what they did when they originally went to prison. They're just better at it now. So we're going to take a quick break. Jay, stay with us, please. Want to win great prizes in awesome contests? Who wouldn't want that? It's easy. Just sign up and subscribe for the Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. We won't spam you. No more than two emails a week. I promise. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. Thanks for staying with us. Our guest today is Jay Wiley from Law Enforcement Today out of Florida. Are you in Florida or are you in Baltimore? I'm in uh, Palm Beach County, Florida. Oh, so it's pretty nice down there. Okay. Yes, it's, I had to get away from Baltimore. It's just a tad too much violence for me. I, I did my time. I, I want peaceful. Really do. Yeah, I hear you. I, that would be nice. There are certain parts of Tucson I will not go to after dark, and it's really too bad. <laughs> it's daytimes, maybe, but definitely not after dark. So tell me about the area that you live in. Does, does the police department have, like, an explorer program where they can engage kids to, you know, start doing the right thing before they start doing the wrong thing? Well, the, the biggest agency here in Palm Beach County is Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, and, and it's, they have a huge area to cover. And then the, the different jurisdictions inside the county have their police departments like West Palm Beach, um, Palm Beach itself, Boynton Beach, Delray, a few other ones. And most of them have an Explorer program or police cadets program. And, it's, and, and all of them have been heavily involved. And this was something that was going on in 1980 in Baltimore. They're heavily involved in community relations and very much thoughtful about and deliberate approach about we want to be part of the community, seems part of the community. Um, and that goes back to the conversation we had earlier where that kind of stuff's not reported. Um, they'd rather use terms like they're an occupying force and uh, all this other nonsense. It's just not true. Uh, but they've been heavily involved in it, and I'm pretty sure PBSO has a very extensive uh, cadets or um, law enforcement explorers program. There was a situation where people are becoming offended because law enforcement looked very military-like when they come in to do whatever their job is, and they were talking about, you know, let's let's change their uniform, let's 
kind of dumb it down, I guess. How do you feel about that? I, I'm just appalled that they would think, you know, the bad guys are going to have better equipment than the good guys and, you know, you want to strip them of, of, uh, his gear. <laughs> well, by the way, you know, looks matter. Uh, as far as people are concerned, it doesn't matter what you do. Again, I'll go back to my, my prior experience. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you do. It depends on how you look. So if they think that uniforms are going to make a difference, have they looked at the violent crime that goes on our communities? Have they seen what they're up against? You said earlier, Sherry, good point. There's parts of your, your city, Tucson, which, by the way, is a lovely city. I was there many years ago. You won't go to at night. But your police have to go there. Your yes. sheriff's department has to go there. Every time there's a call for service, they don't have an option. So if they got soft body armor on and it's exterior body armor, which, by the way, saves a lot of people's backs mm-hmm. and makes you a little uncomfortable, get over it. Uh, take a look at what they're going up against. Yeah, you're dealing with the kind of people that you need to be prepared. I mean, really prepared in, you know, taking their body armor away or, you know, taking their guns away and giving them a baton. You know, uh, this defund the police I know some areas have done that. Has anything like that happened in Florida? No. Uh, I am in Florida. There may be some pockets of that, um, particularly further up north around Orlando, but uh, it's not been an issue here. And areas where they have done it, uh, my old department, Baltimore, I think they, they funded, even though it's the, uh, the number one or number two most violent city in the United States, they defunded their police by about $20 million. And secretly... They turned around and refunded them by an additional $8 million. So they went from $20 million deficit to $28 million uh, additional funds. And they're about 500 officers short. Where we used to go out with, in the district, with 20 to 25 officers, they're going out with seven. Wow. And this is one of the deadliest cities in the United States. So you can't make it where you can train these people, hire people, get the best of the best out there. Guess who's going to suffer? It's not going to be the people in the gated communities. I can guarantee you that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I think this is something that's um, all across the board in, in America. We are not fully staffed as far as police is concerned. Some areas are at critical levels. And I know Tucson is not staffed the way they would like to be staffed. And they're having a very difficult time finding qualified people, recruits. So... Where do you go to get these good people? I know there's good people out there to say, hey, come on in, join our department. People aren't going to like you. You might get spit on or shot at, but hey, it's it's a good job. Come on, <laughs> and join our department. Well, first of all, they've got to, number one, people that go into law enforcement now, uh, most of them have a college education of some, some degree or another. Right. A lot of them are military veterans. Many of them speak multiple languages. They bring many skill sets to the table that are are very much sought after in our communities. And and by the way, when I call 911 because I have a medical emergency in my home, I want the very best possible to show up. And more than likely, it's going to be law enforcement first because there's more. They're more mobile. They're usually closer. So I want them. I want the best ones showing up. These people have more options now. So if they have a choice of making $40,000 a year where they can get sued, and by the way, immunity from prosecution is taken away, or um, I'm forget the term they're looking for. They, they can be held civilly liable for what they're trained to do. Right. Uh, they can get arrested. They can get killed. They can get permanently injured and maimed. And by the way, your entire department and city will attack you they're not going to take that job for $40,000. When they can get another job, it's $45,000, and it's a lot safer. And by the way, having nights and weekends off. Yeah, almost a normal job. It's amazing when I hear these different agencies come on, and they're they're struggling to recruit people. And it used to be a job where, you know, people wanted to be the good guy. (laughs) We need more good guys out there. Definitely. I think there's a lot of people out there that really still want to do this job, and it's a calling. It's a vocation. There's many people that are so good at what they do, and they're community servants, and the reason they carry that gun is when people attack them so they can save their life or the life of someone else. It's not to go gun people down, but when they these people really want to do this job, they've got families to take care of. They've got 
other obligations we'd like to take care of, and maybe they're getting to the point where saying it's just not worth it to risk all that when my wife or my my husband and my kids, you know, they're the ones who're going to have to pay the price. When I'm killed, they're the ones who are going to be left alone. Or worse yet, when I'm physically disabled and maimed for the rest of my life, they're yeah. going to help take care of me, and yeah. we're going to make a lot less, which is happening at alarming rates in every part of the United States. And, you know, I with some of the situations that have happened over the last year or so, you know, I, can, I think it's trial by media, and people are bad-mouthing law enforcement when they go after people that, what was it, a 12-year-old? Running around at two thirty in the morning with a, a gun, <laughs> and I'm like, and he got shot. He didn't put the gun down, or he just dropped it when you know he got shot. What is your twelve year old doing out at two thirty in the morning, waving a gun? People will have to tell you. Then this is my sarcasm coming out, and I apologize in advance. People will tell you it takes a village. Yeah, and to some degree it does, but it also takes a parent, one good parent that's involved in their child's life. And if you have two, great. If you have aunts and uncles and neighbors that care about the kid, they're not going to tolerate that nonsense. No, they're not. And, you know, nothing good was coming out of that situation. And most of the situations that have gotten into the media have involved illegal weapons, drugs, people are on drugs, uh, felony warrants. They're trying to, you know, take a felon off the street. And they get combative and end up, you know, getting injured or permanently yeah. injured. And well, basically, that's what happened to me. It, I was 33 years old, and like I said, I thought I, I knew in this incident, Sherry, that this guy was trying to kill me. When I, I came to this conclusion, this guy's trying to kill me. And the first thought that came to my mind was, I'm going to die, but it's not going to be tonight, and it's not going to be because of him. I'm going to do whatever it takes to survive. But I thought I'd sprain my wrist. And I was 33, married, had two children, mortgage, everything I wanted in life. And within a matter of months, my pay was three-quarters of what it was before. And I was on the way out, and my career was over. Yeah. And it happens in a in a flash. Did you watch the uh, Capitol Police testify this past week? I did not. I, I don't watch a lot of those things, and the reason why is you know, I get too upset. Um, it, and first of all, it, it, it hits things in me that brings up memories of things in the past, and it's a physical, physiological response, so I don't watch them. Now, those, those, all those police are going to be, for the rest of their lives, be affected by what happened on January 6th, and their families, their families. And people don't think about it. If you're married to law enforcement or military, your family is also a part of that department because, yeah. you know, what did your wife go through when, when you were shot? Yeah, well, I, I tell people I wish that we had some of the tools now that we had, uh, that we have available now back then. You know, my, my first marriage ended because of I didn't handle it better. And, you're, you're absolutely right. There is a positive, there, there's definite impacts that's going to happen on the family members, and they're going to get impacted. My daughters are impacted, and they're in their 30s. Uh, granted, it's not part of their daily life anymore, but they certainly paid a price, and they were very young when it's happened. So we have got to get better at having conversations with ourselves, our law enforcement community, our firefighters, our EMTs, uh, uh, our corrections officers, dispatchers. They're all paying a heavy price to try to make our lives safer. And it's being driven by politics and politicians and people trying to create, you need to be afraid. There's an old saying from a movie, the greatest trick ever played is when the devil convinced the world he didn't exist. Well, that's been replaced by the biggest trick in the world is convincing that police are the enemy and not 1% outlaw motorcycle gangs and MS-13 and uh, the mafia or anybody else. Uh, you got to be afraid of the police. That's preposterous. Yeah, it is. Absolutely is. But that's, you know, the media is, is out there, and it's not just the media, the news media. I was watching, and I I'd talked about this on the show before, I was watching the news media. They were reporting an officer-involved shooting, and the reporter said the, the um, racist policeman went after this kid who had a felony warrant out and shot him because he was black. Not the fact that the kid was shooting at him. 
and they're you know, exchanging fire and the kid started it and he had a felony warrant you know the racist police went after him i'm like right. what are you what are you doing this isn't reporting you're not being you know this is very no. biased it's it's about opinion and speculation most of what it passes at news nowadays and uh, again you and i both work on radio most of what passes for news nowadays, especially in the morning shows, is opinion and speculation, and they bring in so-called experts, and I'm thinking half the time, what are they even talking about? I don't know if these people even know have a clue what they're talking about, and that's what a lot of our news reporters are. Some states are changing. As a police officer, in many states, you're a public official, and people say whatever they want. As long as there's some basis in truth to it, there's, there's, you're pretty much open game. Now that I'm retired, if someone comes out to me and calls me those sort of things, they can expect to be in court. They're going to get sued. Yeah. And people need to stop doing that and just report what's happening. We call them the talking heads. You know, what did the talking heads say today? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. You know, and it, you're right. It's basically their opinion. They're not trying to get the truth out there. And this is something that we try to do, you and I both. And I think we're both of the same generation. I had a lot of friends in, in Vietnam. And, you know, when they came back, it was pretty horrific. I was appalled. Because I, my mom and dad were both in the Marine Corps during World War II. So I was raised differently. I was raised to respect the military, respect police. And they, people don't raise their kids like that anymore. And unfortunately, some don't. And that's going back to that. Hey, I don't have to take care of my kids and raise them. The, the idiots, I'm sorry, the village will do it. Um, so <laughs> I don't have to do it. The problem is a lot of the leaders in the, the village are idiots. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this whole thing with the COVID thing, how has COVID affected you and your family? Are you okay? Um everybody's good my wife and i got vaccinated probably about four or five months ago because you know we're i'm I'm in my early 60s and i'm never worried about it um i i tell people this whole six feet apart i prefer 21 feet apart and uh, look it's right in my alley i go to a radio station i do my job then i go home and i have to be around people that's like perfect environment for me (laughs) I, i like it so we got the shots because we want to be able to travel and People are entitled to their opinions. You know, I'm just not, I don't engage them. If they want to argue about it, go have at it. Uh, i got other things to do. Yeah, I was vaccinated too, and same, same. I've got other things to do. And the politics of this whole COVID thing is just blows my mind. You know, I'm not going to go to my uh, precinct captain to find out what I need for my sore throat. I'm just, it doesn't work that way. So listen to your doctors, listen to the scientists. That's the best thing you can do. And use yeah, your head. And have common sense. You know, I wear my seatbelt when I drive a car because I've, I've never seen a professional race car driver drive without one. When I was a police officer, I always wore soft body armor because that was ingrained in me. So getting uh, the vaccination was not a big deal. I've been, as a kid, I was vaccinated against everything. I probably, like you, I had the scar on my arm. We had every, every inoculation in the world uh, known to mankind we had. And I'm fine. Um, so getting this thing, but when people get on TV and they love to talk about it and COVID this, COVID that, we need to do this, we need to do that. And I'm like, yeah, you need to, you need to shut up. Yeah, and, uh, I, now it's on the news. Back. People are protesting, yeah. wear a mask. People are protesting, don't wear a mask. And I'm thinking, get a life. Exactly. <laughs> you know? things to do. Sherry, I'm busy. You're busy. Aren't you busy? I'm terribly busy. I don't have time for that. But I remember when I was in grade school, the nuns would line us up and everybody got a shot in school. Yeah. And it was, you know, no questions asked. <laughs> it's a done deal. And I have the scars to prove it. <laughs> I can go back and we're obviously the same age group. I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia, a big military town. And one of the drills we had was the fire drill. Everybody knew that in elementary school. But the other one we had was a nuclear bomb drill where they sound the alarm and we had to get on our desk. And we were convinced because this is what the government told us. Hey, this will keep you safe. Getting under a little desk is not going to save your life. A nuclear bomb is dropped on your school. It's just not going to make a difference. Yet we did it anyway. 
So people get too occupied in what the talking heads say you should or shouldn't do. And they pepper it with their opinion. Oh, and they're elitist. I'll look down in here because you're stupid if you don't agree with me type attitude. Well, I found out later on in life that desk and his drills did nothing and never would have done anything. But it was nice to make us feel like we were putting a Band-Aid on the bleed. You know what I mean? The air raid trails. I remember them. And, we, yeah. and you know, we had um, the blackout trails, too. Yeah. And then it was replaced with tornado drills. <laughs> yeah. So we were drilled all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Drilled and, and given shots. That's and given shots. Stand there. Don't move. <laughs> So yeah, that's a different time now. People, people are there's there's a group of people who want their kids to get vaccine vaccinated, and another group that says no way. It's just crazy. I think the world's just going crazy. Yeah, my daughters, like I said, they're in their early thirties, and they've both been vaccinated. That's their choice, and they get to decide what they want to do. If I had, if I was a parent of a five year old or six year old right now, I think my mind would be totally different, and. Uh, again, I go back to people are entitled to their opinions and their point of view, their perspective. Their perspective is their reality. It doesn't mean it has to match your facts. So it, it's not just about this. It's about anything. When people start spouting off, the more emotional they are about something, quite often it's run by their perspective, their experience, and who am I to tell them they're wrong? All I can do is, hey, not be part of the problem, be part of the solution. And when you're listening to the news, switch it up. Listen to all the stations. Don't just focus in on one station because after a while you've got their perspective, whether it's liberal or it's conservative, whatever it is, you've been, it's kind of like a brainwashing. It's, you know, that's your perspective and that's what you believe. And there's a lot of propaganda out there all over the place. <laughs> so you need to consider the source too. <laughs> Yeah, and people, if, if they ask me, and uh, one of the greatest compliments I've had working in radio is people say, you know, I don't know if you're conservative or liberal or what you are. And I'm like, thank you. That's the whole point. Because when I do a radio show, especially a music radio show, it's not about me. It's about my audience and it's about my guests and making sure they get what they need, uh, like, like you're doing. We have a conversation. And what I believe, what my thoughts, what my opinions are, really don't matter experience is what people really want to hear about yeah it's true and we try to get the good news out there not that everybody wants to hear it but we do every once in a while we'll get uh, an agency will call and say hey we've got somebody want to brag about we've got a segment we call above and beyond the badge and you can see it on our website lawmatters1030.org and we've got some really exceptional law enforcement people out there who do things they don't need to do. They can go to work and go home and, you know, not be bothered, collect the paycheck. But these people are invested in their community and they really want to help people. And like you said, it's a, it's a, it's a vocation. You want to be a part of the community and part of making it better. That's why people get into law enforcement and the military and, we need more people like that all across the country. Absolutely. And uh, a lot of big things happening in departments is uh, what they call laterals. They'll take people who are uh, experienced police from other agencies and give them a job at a higher rate of pay. They don't have to train them. They, I, I had a guest on a show, uh, Sheriff's Department in Maryland, and he said it cost them on average, I think, $120,000 to get one deputy on the street between uh, all the people that don't make it, that don't don't that the, the, the wash out, that don't make it to the academy, whatever it might be, that's the cost. And then many of them are leaving within three years. So the retention problem on top of that is huge. So what they're doing is they're going for the best of. Let's say Tucson is doing laterals for the the county guys that have ten years on the job. When I say guys, that means men and women. They're getting the best of the best, and they're taken from other agencies because. Everybody is in this race to try to get and fill the positions they need because our communities need these people. Yes, they do. And it's, you know, you say it takes a village. It does take a village. And I remember when I was little, there was a Bobby on the beat. People would know who the law law enforcement officer was. John was our officer john he was our policeman in our neighborhood he walked the neighborhood he talked to people he shook hands he you know played catch with the kids you don't see that anymore not a lot 
periodically you'll see it, but not a lot. And they don't have manpower to do that. They don't have the manpower to, to actually... We were told that they are not pulling speeders over anymore. They're not giving out tickets because they don't have the people to do that. They are responding to calls. They don't have people just patrolling, and it makes a big difference. I remember uh, my my first post in in Baltimore, my sergeant said to me, if I pull someone up and pull you up and point somebody, you don't know who their name is, you don't know where they live, you don't know whether they're a good guy or bad guy, you don't know who their parents are, you're not doing your job. Your job is to handle calls for service and be a fixture in this community. And you knew you arrived when the people in the community gave you a nickname. And that was, you became part of, you got invited to the backyard barbecues. Yep. And of course, you're also there when people took their last breaths when they got shot. Yeah. Um, so you're on all sides of it. And when you have encounters with people, it's usually because they're having a really, really bad moment. So it really helps if they know someone, but when you don't have enough people to fill those positions, even handle calls for service, you're going to lose that aspect of what we call community policing now is, was what we did all the time was everyday policing. And I was taught that by Vietnam veterans, and I was taught that by even some Korean War veterans who are commanders. It's about being respect and about giving it and getting it and being an integral part of the community and helping solve people's problems. Yeah, and I think that's that's the big thing is respecting the people in your community, and they'll respect you back and treating everybody right if we can if we can do that. What was your nickname, Jay? I've had many. My first one was Bigfoot because I wore a size 13 shoe. And then, uh, remember Deep Throat from the, the Watergate days? Yes. Because of a deep voice, they called me Deep Throat after that. <laughs> okay. Give me some words of wisdom for our listeners and people who are thinking about getting into law enforcement or the military. Listen, if you want to get into it, I would tell people, Get into the military when you're young. I didn't do that. I was stupid. I stayed home, had menial jobs. Go somewhere, learn something. And if you're interested in career in law enforcement, get it. But one and go for it. But one thing I would tell people is, you have a dentist you see every year. You have a general position position you see every year. If you're going into law enforcement, make sure you have a, a psychologist, a psychiatrist that is skilled in trauma. You see once a year on your own, so that you can do the proactive work uh, to prevent any kind of long-term uh, mental injuries. But it's a great career, and I highly recommend it. That's really sound advice because it, you're going to benefit from it. So will your family because so many times people don't, you know, they take the work home and either they talk about it or they don't, and if it's bottled up, you're not getting the help you need. Jay, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You're an absolute scholar. I love you. Thanks, Sherry. It's a pleasure. Okay, until next week, I want everybody to shop local, stay safe, and stay out of the wash. Hey, folks, when you have a chance, check out our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. When you get there, click like and follow. That's click, like, and follow Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. This was a special episode of the Law Enforcement Today podcast. I'll be back in a few days with a new regular episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.